If you would, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 15. This morning we want to continue looking at our series, the series we've entitled The Vine and the Branches. It comes out of the first eight verses of John 15. Let's just read uh, verse 1 where Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Now, so far in this series, we've looked at the true vine, Jesus Christ, the vine dresser, which is the Father, and then starting last week, we began to look at the vine branches, and we started with those we're calling Judas branches. Let's back up and read verse 2 again. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. As we said last time, this is the controversial part of this passage. Who are these branches that don't bear fruit and are cast out and burned? Well, go back and listen. to. If you weren't here, you can dial it up online. Uh, it would be helpful if you did that because it really fits into what we've been talking about. Let me just say this. I don't believe the branches that don't bear fruit are speaking of Christians who don't bear fruit and are eventually cut off from Christ and cast into hell. Now, there are people, uh, many good teachers that believe that. I don't happen to be one of them. Um, I don't believe these are Christians who, because they don't measure up to some level of holiness or fruit-bearing, that eventually God just says, ah, you're worthless, I'm cutting you off and throwing you into hell. Uh, no, I don't believe that. I believe these are uh, counterfeit believers. Uh, think of Judas. Judas Iscariot was a disciple of Christ, an apostle, yet he was never really saved. We've talked about that. But uh, I believe Jesus has in mind when he talks about these branches that are cut off and eventually burned, he's, he's talking about superficial uh, people who are connected to him superficially, call themselves Christians, come to church, you know, that kind of thing but um, have never really made a full commitment to Jesus Christ. They've never really invited him in to their heart to take control. Again, they're phony or counterfeit disciples who are only superficially attached or connected to Christ. Again, like Judas, which is why we have some have called these Judas branches and so on. And, and, and so we're not going to spend any more time reviewing. You can go online and listen to last week's study. But this morning, that brings us to what we'll call Jesus branches. Judas branches, these are professors. These are those who profess to have eternal life. And now we talk about the Jesus branches who are possessors, genuine possessors of eternal life. Guys, everything that Jesus has, this is very important. Please don't miss it. Everything that Jesus has to say to those who are true believers in this passage is built on the concept of abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ. Look at verse 4. Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Yet the impression abide is very important to John. Okay, the word. In fact, the word abide is a key word in all of John's writings. It occurs 11 times in this chapter, 40 times in this gospel, and 27 more times in his epistles. Very important concept. Uh, what does it mean? Well, the Greek word is meno, and it really means to, to remain or to continue. To remain or to continue. Um, what is the nature of abiding? Well, when it comes to abiding in Christ, there's two sides to it. There is what I'm calling union and then communion. Union, and we're talking about abiding now. There's union and then there's communion. Union with Jesus is the connection that comes. when We put our faith in him, accepting him into our heart as our Lord and our Savior. Uh, guys, this is a positional connection to Christ that we commonly refer to as salvation right when i say that this is a positional connection i'm saying that it isn't subject to what we do or don't do in the christian life it is a gift of grace that's what salvation is uh, we receive it by faith you all know ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 for by grace you have been saved grace basically means a gift a gift for by grace you have been saved through faith that not of yourselves, here it is, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Guys, since salvation is a gift we didn't earn, it is therefore something we cannot lose or forfeit. Now, not every teacher agrees with that either, all right? But how can you lose a gift? If you didn't earn it, if it's not a reward that you've earned, but a gift that you've simply received by faith, how do you lose it, right? No, not that I'm advocating for trying to lose it. But the devil has caused a lot of fear, a lot of condemnation in the hearts of Christians because they believe if they don't perform up to some level of sufficiency, adequacy, fruit-bearing, eventually God's going to cut them off and they'll be sent to hell. You'll never be victorious as a Christian if, if you live in fear from moment to moment that you're, you're going to stay a Christian. Okay? It's a gift. You didn't earn it, you can't lose it. Okay? That's positional, a positional truth. Okay? Now, I believe the 11 remaining disciples that night had genuinely entered into union with Jesus, which he, he verifies in verse 3. You are already clean. In other words, cleansed of sin. You're saved because of the word which I have spoken to you. But there was one disciple who wasn't clean. Uh, there was one that wasn't genuine, one that wasn't saved. Verse uh, 10, backing up to chapter 13 for just a second. Uh, by the time we come to 15, Judas is gone. He's out carrying out his betrayal of Christ. But I want you to hear what Jesus had said earlier in the evening about Judas, right? Uh, John 13, verses 10 and 11. And you are clean, but not all of you, starting in the middle of the verse there. You are clean, but not all of you. If we're using clean, which is a synonym for saved, you get the idea. 
for he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. He was speaking of Judas. Judas. So in that regard, these disciples, the 11 remaining disciples, had already entered into a positional abiding in Christ. Uh, in other words, they were saved. They received the gospel. They were genuine. So first comes union. You have to be saved first, have union with Christ, right? Before you can have communion. The whole point of salvation, guys, is to glorify God by bearing fruit. In John 15, verse 8, Jesus said, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. So you will be, or in other words, prove to be my disciples. Fruit doesn't make you a Christian. It just bears evidence that you are a Christian. We've talked about that. But listen, we're never going to bear fruit as God wants us to in our Christian lives unless we stay in a perpetual state of connect, connectedness to Jesus. We call this communion or fellowship. This is a practical connection to Jesus that, listen, is dependent on what we do or don't do in our Christian lives. We would, uh, which would involve, uh, you know, so this, this fellowship, you know, we're saved forever. You're saved at all, you're saved forever. But that doesn't mean you're going to enjoy fellowship with Jesus, unbroken fellowship forever, uh, on a practical level. That's what we're talking about now, right? Uh, union with Christ, accept Jesus as your Savior by faith. You get connected to Christ in salvation. But now it becomes our responsibility, yes, by God's grace, to walk with the Lord, to stay in a perpetual state of connectedness to Christ, fellowship, right? Fellowship. Uh, it's up to us. And what would break our fellowship with Jesus? Well, of course, sin. And I'm talking here about not only just sins of commission, but sins of omission. What do you say? Well, what do you mean? Well, all right, very simply, uh, thou shalt not steal, right? If you stole something or you steal something, that's a sin of commission. You have willfully uh, done something against what God has said, right? You've broken one of his commandments. That's a sin of commission. If you're checking out at the store and the cashier gives you more money back than what you deserve and you don't say anything, because after all, I didn't steal it. But God is saying, but it's a sin of omission. If you don't speak, you didn't actively do it. You didn't reach in and take the money. But because you're not acknowledging that they gave you too much money and you keep that money, that's what's called the sin of omission. And a lot of Christians are guilty of sins of omission, right? Uh, on the job, you worked as a team to, for some report or something at work. And uh, your coworker did most of the work, but your boss thinks you did it comes to you and uh, and really praises you for the hard work and the great job you did. Now, you know you didn't really work that much on this project. It was so-and-so. But you don't say anything. You take that praise. You let the boss think it was you. That's a sin of omission. Okay? And, and so that's what we're saying. I don't, most Christians won't steal, uh, do all kinds of... But but then they, they, they do other things by not... Look, it's, it's just simply this way. Doing what is wrong is a sin of commission. Not doing what is right is a sin of omission. So you can chew on that, okay? 
Um, these will break our, uh, our practical fellowship with God. Sometimes, though, it's just simply that you've let your walk um, atrophy. You're, you're, you're not in the Word anymore. You're not coming to church. You're not in fellowship. And after a while, it's just, you know, the world replaces the Lord. It's not something you're, you're actively trying to do, but it happens. And uh, that's when your fellowship with Jesus can be broken as well. Look, if we don't stay in communion with Jesus, in unbroken, everyday fellowship, we're never going to bear fruit, which, again, is the ultimate goal of our Christianity. When Christians don't abide, when they don't abide, in other words, they don't maintain practical fellowship with Jesus, look, they don't lose their salvation. But they do lose their victory over the flesh. They lose the spiritual dynamic that had one time characterized their walk with God. And they lose any fruit of the Spirit that was growing in their life. Then they lose their witness, their opportunities to serve God, and ultimately their rewards in heaven. No, they don't lose their salvation. That's secure. It's a gift of God's grace, not of works, lest any should boast. Right? Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that. But, you know, the goal of Christianity is not just making it into heaven. It's entering abundantly, okay? You ever heard anybody say, you know, well, I don't serve God, you know, because I'm really busy, and I mean, that's okay. And you say, well, don't you want rewards in heaven? No, I don't care. Just, I just want to make it. Well, you know, talk about setting the bar high. I just want to make it. Well, uh, you know, God's saying, you know, I... It's not about you just being saved. It's about your life being lived for me to glorify me, and, and so on. Um, all right, abiding, very important. Let's look at what I'm calling the practice of abiding, okay? Practice of abiding. First, out, outward actions, outward actions, okay? Uh, this is the practical side of abiding. So, yeah, we're going to talk about some of the practical things. When it comes to the practice of abiding in Christ on a daily basis, first of all, Two schools of thought have developed. Two approaches that try to address this important issue. The pacifist approach and then the activist approach. What are they? All right. Those in the pacifist camp say that the way to abide in Christ on a daily basis is to do nothing but simply yield to God and let him do all the work. The reasoning goes something like this. Christ lives in you, they say and wants to use you the way a hand uses a glove. All the glove has to do is surrender, submit. That's their view, right? God does all the work. Anything, you get your hands in there any way, shape, or form, it's a work of the flesh, you're going to mess the whole thing up. Those in the activist camp respond by saying, we're not dead gloves. Okay. Uh, we have a responsibility to put in effort, you know, into our walk with God and to do the things he has commanded us to do. And yes, we must yield to God, we must submit, but he won't force us to do the things, to do these things, all the things that we are talking about. Uh, he won't force us to do the things uh, that he is, you know, commanding us to, to do, to stay in fellowship. Uh, he won't command us against our free will. Well, you know, what school is correct? I think both of them are really right to some degree, uh, it, you know, there's a measure of truth in both. Um, abiding, guys, is not a passive thing. It's not a passive thing, like a glove on a hand. Because 
a glove doesn't have an intellect. A glove doesn't have a free will the way a person does. Listen, a glove can't rebel. All it can do is submit. So that's kind of a lousy illustration in this context. Now, I've used that illustration in different Christian contexts, and it's okay. But right now, we're talking about, you know, abiding and, 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 and doing what God has commanded and all. Um, you know, you're just a glove. Just you're a, just a dead glove. And the Holy Spirit, you know, wants to submit. And let God put his hand in you and do everything he wants to do. I don't see it that way completely. On the other hand, no pun intended, uh, abiding is not such an active thing on our part that, listen, we do everything and God basically does nothing. Look at verse 5, John 15. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit for what? Without me, you can do nothing. I mean, certainly God has a part. In fact, I think Paul the Apostle struck the balance on this subject when he admonished us as believers in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. He said to us, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So Paul is saying that God works in, we work out. On the other, in other words, God has a part and I have a part. This is the balance that a lot of Christians can't seem to strike. This is the balance. I have a part and God won't do my part. He has a part and I, I can't do his part. There's a balance here. Now, believe me when I tell you that God doesn't need us for anything. If God wanted to, he could do everything he's got. But he doesn't. He allows us to have a responsibility. He allows us to have things that we need to do in obedience, you know, uh, discipline, those kind of things. God knows what he's doing. And he has a part, and he is telling us, look, let me do my part. I'll give you the grace, the strength, the ability to do the impossible. You have to have the will. You have to present yourself. You have to report for duty, right, every day is, is, is the idea, right? Um, but as we surrender, God works in us. And then as we obey, God works out from our lives His will and purposes. Practically speaking, there are things that we must do if we're going to continue abiding in Christ every day. Or else, the writers of the New Testament, like Paul, would not have admonished us, including the Lord Jesus Christ, would not have admonished us to abide. I mean, if it was automatic and God does everything and we do nothing... There's no point in admonishing us to do something, right? All right. So what's the first thing on the list? And these are very deep and profound. And it's a good thing you have me here to explain them to you. <laughs> I just want you to know that. So these are just some of the basics of abiding. What do I do? Outward, we're talking about outward actions, right? First thing is you pray. Prayer, okay? Um, and let me say something that, again, doesn't sit well with a lot of other teachers. Um, I look at prayer not as a monologue, but as a dialogue. Now, there are those who bristle, get very upset when Christians say, God speaks to me. Oh, yes, in his word. Well, yeah, of course, primarily. But God speaks to me individually about matters that pertain to my own life specifically. Oh, no. 
That is absolutely untrue. I disagree with that. I disagree with that. No, God doesn't speak to us in doctrine. The doctrine comes from the Word of God. Uh, he doesn't speak to me some new doctrine. I mean, all the doctrine we need, we're going to get, is already in the Word, right? But if a person thinks that God doesn't uh, speak to individuals, guiding them in, in, in specific ways for his glory through their own life, uh, I, I, feel, I feel sorry for them. They're missing a whole rich relationship with God. All right? I believe prayer is a dialogue and not a monologue. In that regard, listen, communion, first and foremost, is communication. Communion with communication. How are you going to... Years ago, I was doing a marriage series, and so I was studying a lot of things on marriage, and a top marriage counselor said that 90% of marital problems that he sees in his counseling ministry is a lack of communication. And that's true. I've seen that in my ministry. Um, if you don't communicate with your spouse, you're not going to draw close to them. The strongest, healthiest marriages are those where spouses talk to each other, not at each other, talk to each other. And they not just you know, for the nuts and bolts things, uh, who's going to pick the kids up uh, next week from soccer and that kind of thing. It, it's, it's, you know, communicating with each other and, uh, and just talking and, and encouraging one another or something to that effect, right? Well, we don't have to encourage God. He doesn't have a problem in that area. But, but when he talks to us, he encourages us. That's what prophecy is all about. 1 Corinthians 14, gift of prophecy. He who speaks... Uh, in prophecy, he speaks to, to comfort, edification, and exhortation. When God speaks, that's what prophecy is, God speaking to us. Uh, God speaks to encourage, sometimes correct, uh, but, but he's, he's giving input into us in, in that regard. But this is what communication does. It draws us closer to God. We're talking about prayer now. It's, it's, it draws us closer to God. And I encourage you to pray without ceasing. What does that mean? Everywhere you are, you can be lifting up prayers to God, thanking Him for this or that, asking Him for, for guidance and so on. Uh, our prayer life is really an ongoing thing if it's, if it's done right, okay? Uh, please, if you're driving a car, uh, don't close your eyes and pray. Watch and pray, right? Secondly, the second outward activity that we engage in to, to keep abiding practically uh, in Christ is the Word of God, the Word of God. John 8, 31, Jesus said, If you abide, the Greek word is meno, continue. If you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. So continuing in the word of God allows us to abide in Christ on a practical, ongoing basis, right? I will have you turn to 1 John 2. First John 2, and let's start with verse 3, where John says, Now, by this we know that we know him. In other words, here's how we know we're saved, okay? If we keep his commandments. Now, again, keeping God's commandments, commandments doesn't save us, but it's a fruit and evidence that we are saved. Now, do we always keep all the commandments? I'm thinking of the ten Okay. Uh, all the time without fail? No, we, we blow it. But it's always in our heart. 
uh, as Christians, to obey God, right? To do always those things that please our Father. That's what Jesus said. That was his heart. That's the heart of any true uh, child of God. Uh, th by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, I I'm a Christian, and does not keep his commandments, and the Greek is perpetually, uh, habitually, uh, not once in a great while, but in an ongoing way. Yes, failing here and there, but perpetually this is something that is an ongoing thing, that we're keeping his commandments. Um, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. In other words, that we are abiding in him. This is how we know, if we continue in his word, all right? Uh, Andrew Murray, in his classic work, Abide in Christ, uh, which I've decided to make our book of the quarter. They'll be here next week. He said this, great book, uh, great book. He said, and I'm quoting him now on the subject, The more I think of and pray about the religious situation in our country, the deeper my conviction becomes that Christians do not realize that the aim of their conversion is to bring them into daily fellowship communion with the Father in heaven. For the believer, taking time each day with God's word and in prayer is indispensable. Each day we need to wait upon God for his presence and his love to be revealed. It is not enough uh, at conversion to accept forgiveness of sins or even to surrender to God. That is only the beginning. We must understand that we have no power on our own to maintain our spiritual walk. I've underlined that. All right, let me read it again. We must understand that we have no power on our own to maintain our spiritual life. We need to receive daily new grace from heaven uh, through fellowship with the Lord Jesus. This cannot be obtained by a hasty prayer or a superficial reading of a few verses from God's word. We must take the time to come into God's presence to feel our weakness and our need and to wait for God uh, through his Holy Spirit to renew our fellowship with him. Then we may expect to keep by the power of Christ throughout the day what he has said. It is my aim to help Christians to see the absolute necessity of spending time with the Lord Jesus. Without this, the joy and power of God's Holy Spirit in daily life cannot be experienced. And so that's, that's just straight out there, okay? Let's stop kidding ourselves. Our walk is never going to be what God wants it to be with, you know, a prayer before bed or before meals and getting up and reading a couple of verses before you rush off to work. I mean, that's better than nothing but not much. If this is a subject that is, you're taking seriously, as, as I am doing, and, 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 and I've already brought my heart before the Lord and confessed my lack of spending time with him like I should in prayer uh, and in the word like I should. We say, well, you teach three times a week. Yeah, I'm teaching others. Well, we need to soak in the word for ourselves, right? Um, and, and that's a very important thing. But um, we need to spend that time in God's presence if we're going to have fresh grace every day to abide in Christ. And, and that's all there is to it. The third outward activity that we need if we're going to stay connected to Christ in fellowship is confession. Confession. Now, sin severs our communion with God. 
Uh, I'm talking about our practical con communion, our fellowship, right? But confession reconnects us to God. Turn to 1 John 1. Listen to what John said. I want to talk about this just for a minute. Again, sin severs our fellowship with the Lord, but confession reconnects us to God. Practically now, I'm talking about on a daily basis. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the implication is, and reconnect us to himself in fellowship. What is confession? Well, the Greek word simply means to say the same thing. To say the same thing. When you do something wrong and you come before God and you basically make an excuse for yourself or you blame somebody else, don't expect any forgiveness. Confession is simply saying the same thing. God, here's what you said I violated that. I acknowledge what I did was sin because it violated your word and I'm asking for forgiveness. Then God says, fine. I want you to acknowledge what you did was wrong. I don't want you to blame anybody else. I don't want you to make any excuses. If you own it, if you say, Father, I agree with you. I say the same thing as you. You said this was wrong. I knew it was wrong. I did it anyway. And I'm coming before you now confessing it to you and asking for forgiveness. John said, if you do that, God will never turn you away. You will always have forgiveness. And what that does is it will reconnect you to Christ in that everyday practical fellowship that we're talking about, okay? And number four, I, I just, this is so basic, but I'll throw it out there, okay? Is obedience. Obedience, we've kind of touched on it already. But a life of obedience is absolutely essential to maintaining your communion with Jesus. We're not going to be perfect. We know that. Uh, but there's a difference between uh, trying to be perfect and then trying to just play fast and loose with sin because I'm saved by grace. What does it matter? Okay? You know, what, what can God do to me? I'm saved by grace. It's a lady who said that to her pastor one time. He was shocked and horrified. Uh, but this is the mentality. You know, she was having an affair. He called her into the office and confronted her. Well, okay, I know I'm doing it, but, but really, what can God do to me? I, I'm saved by grace. I don't know if he said this. I would have said it. What can God do to you? Let me count the ways. <laughs> no, you're not going to lose your salvation, but he can make life pretty unpleasant until you get your life right with him because he loves you and wants to bless you when he can't if you're living in sin, right? But... A life of obedience is absolutely essential to maintaining our communion with Jesus because, again, sin severs our fellowship with God. You all know Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, where God said, Behold, my hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is my ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from me, and your sins have hidden my face from you so that I will not hear your prayers. The idea is that if we have sin in our life, Forget going to church. Forget praying. Guys, I don't, want to, I don't want to see you in church unless you're here to repent. I don't want you to talk to me in prayer unless you're going to repent for your sin. Get your relationship with me right. Sin has separated you from me. And, and we're not going to, I'm not going to go any farther with you uh, in your walk unless you get right with me, confess the sin, 
and get reconnected. Then we'll move forward. 1 John 1, 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him, we're abiding in Christ. And yet we're walking in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. Don't tell me you are a Christian and your walk with God is fine, but I know you're living with your girlfriend or your boyfriend or you're doing something you know, else. Uh, don't deceive yourself into thinking you're fine because after all, I still read the Bible. I still go to church. Uh, I still serve in ministry. God knows we love each other. We're going to get married eventually someday, baby. You know. No, that's... Uh, we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness. We're only deceiving ourselves. We're not practicing the truth. We're not walking in God's truth. Okay? And one more. 1 John 2, 6. He who says he abides in him, he, whoever says I abide in Christ, ought himself also to walk just as Jesus walked. So, again... Uh, you know, if you if if you're abiding is your goal, which I hope it is, understand Jesus is the example. Walk as He walked. I do always those things that please my Father. He said that's got to be the heart of a of a true disciple. Okay, under that third subpoint, the practice of abiding, we have seen the outward actions: prayer, staying in the Word, confession of sins, and overall obedience. Right. Here's the inward act, uh, act, attitude. That was, I'm sorry, the outward actions. This is the inward attitude. We'll, we'll finish with this, okay? Um, I have, you have to lay out the obvious and the basics uh, so that we have to get that on the table. I mean, it's, I know it's obvious and all, but sometimes, as Peter said, uh, we need to put the, each other in remembrance of the basics um, just so we know that we have those nailed down. But the outward actions, that brings us to the inward attitude. This is very important. This, we'll end with this. Not real soon, but we'll end with this. Okay? We often make the mistake of thinking. Now, please bear with me. You're, you're going to think, are you contradicting everything you just said? No. We often make the mistake of thinking that outward actions like reading our Bibles, going to church, praying, serving God, will result in our abiding in Him. And certainly those things are necessary if we want to keep abiding in Christ. I'm not saying they're not important. We just said they were, okay? But only, listen, only if the motive of our heart when you do these things is love. This is something that is overlooked quite a bit, okay? Please don't miss it. When a parent tells their child to clean up their room, if the child obeys, does their obedience automatically demonstrate their love for that parent? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Their obedience could be motiva motivated by the fear of consequences if they don't clean up their room. Or it could be motivated by a promise of some reward. Clean up your room, I'll take you out for ice cream. Oh, great. Sure, I'll clean my room, but I want ice cream. In other words, their obedience could be totally rooted in self-interest and not have anything to do with loving their parents at all. The same is true with our obedience to and service for God. These things that we do for him might not be motivated by a sincere love for Jesus, but actually be motivated by a love of self. So a lot of people get involved in ministry because they like the recognition. They like the honor that comes from being a deacon or an elder or, or some other 
person in ministry. I had one guy tell me that his wife wanted to serve because it would bolster her self-esteem. I said, that's not why you serve Christ. You know, we don't look for people to serve because we want to bolster their self-esteem. But this is the problem. A lot of people are involved in things, good things, but out of a wrong heart. Abiding, guys, is all about love. A deep love relationship with Jesus that leads to obeying and serving him out of love. Look at John 15, verses 9 and 10. Because Jesus basically said this. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Look, when we are in love with the Lord, we will, stay, we will want to pray, want to read our Bibles, go to church, we'll want to tell others about him. Our love for him will be the motivation for all we do for him. But it's possible to be obedient to what God has said and even be serving him in ministry and still, listen, and still not be very close to him. In fact, many people are still actively serving God in ministry whose hearts have grown cold a long time earlier. What do I mean? Well, turn to Revelation chapter 2. And let's look at one church that was guilty of this, the church of Ephesus, which Jesus addresses in these verses. Revelation 2, starting with verse 2, where Jesus commended this church, first of all, for how tirelessly they served him in ministry. He said, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have, and have patience and have, and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. That's all good stuff. They were working for Jesus to the point of exhaustion. Here's the word. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. The Greek is a word that means honeymoon love, passionate love. The church at Ephesus fell into the trap of thinking that loveless service was enough to please the Lord. Now, we've talked about this. Bear with me. The church of Ephesus fell into the trap of thinking that all God wanted was service. And loving him was really not even an issue, as long as I'm serving. It would kind of be like a wife who says to her husband, um, I don't love you anymore. I have no feelings at all for you, but... I'm going to stay married to you. I'm going to still clean the house. I'm going to still wash your clothes and cook your meals. What husband would be happy with a relationship like that? I didn't marry my wife so that I would have someone to cook my meals and clean my house. I can hire a maid to do that. I married Cindy because I fell in love with her and she with me. I know she loved me with all her heart. And now that I know she loves me, all the acts of service she does for me are special and beautiful because I know they are an expression of her love for me. But without the love, they would be meaningless. Meaningless. It's obvious that Jesus feels the same way and wants more than service 
in his relationship with his bride. He wants passionate honeymoon love. Remember, he is holding his church in his loving arms with his nail-scarred hands, which speaks of the ultimate act of selfless love, to lay down your life for the person or the ones that you love. Let me ask you guys this question. I've asked it to myself. So I'm not just talking to you. What kind of love are you giving Jesus in return? Now, we know the love he gave us. He died for us. What kind of love are you giving him in return? Look, all Christians love Jesus. We've talked about that. Not all Christians are in love with Jesus. And there's a difference. When was the last time you told the Lord, I love you? But it wasn't tied to something you wanted from him. It wasn't embedded in some prayer request. You know, some marriages have so deteriorated that the words I love you are only used when couples want something from the other. That's sad. In Jesus' letter to the church of Ephesus, he goes on to tell them what they needed to do to get back to that first love or that honeymoon love in their relationship with him. In other words, how they could get back to abiding in him. Uh, uh, communion on that practical level. Look at verse 5, Revelation 2, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Let me just briefly talk about this. First love, from what Jesus said, can be restored if we follow the three instructions he gave us. First, we must remember the love we used to have for him um, and cultivate a desire to regain that close communion once again. you got to remember how it was when you first got saved, right? Look, can I just encourage you not to adopt the new normal mindset? They're trying to condition us uh, to forget what life used to be like in our country. Now that they've tasted power from all the lockdowns and things. And you, you hear the, the expression, well, this is the new normal. And that's designed to get you to relinquish the past you know, and just accept what's here now. We do this as Christians oftentimes. Our walk becomes so kind of cold, robotic, and formal that eventually we tell ourselves we're fine. This, it, we don't even maybe think of it being the new normal. It's just normal. And we tend to look at other people who are really on fire for the Lord and they're going door to door passing out tracts or they're always talking to somebody about Jesus. They're the fanatic. I'm normal. Because nobody wants to think they're abnormal right? So wherever I am, I make that the norm. That's sad. Because then you're not looking to rekindle anything in your walk with Christ. This is good. We're, we're good. Well, why do you say that? Well, I don't know. We're just good. Okay. Well, as long as you say so. So you must remember how it was when you first fell in love with Jesus, right? Then we must repent, Jesus said which means to turn around and forsake, listen, any relationship with anyone or anything that is competing in our hearts for the love that belongs to Jesus. You fill in the blank. You fill in the blank. Is there anyone or anything in your life that is competing with your love for Jesus? You say, are you talking about my marriage? Well, yeah, kind of. 
I can't really love my wife properly unless I love Jesus above all else. Right? What are we going to say? Well, I love my spouse more than God, and that's okay? He comes in a close second? No, of course not. Right? So, yeah, in, in that regard, sure. Um, but that doesn't mean, look, I, I am of the mindset, if you love Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you're going to love every other person in your life properly, starting with your spouse. And number three, we must repeat the first work. Remember, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do your first works. Repeat, right? Yes, but you say, but what does it mean to repeat? What are you talking about? Well, what were you doing when you first fell in love with Jesus and were on fire for him? Well, I was going to church on a regular basis. Go again. I was getting up early for morning devotions. Do it again. I sang praise to the Lord as I walked through my way, my day. Sing again. Remember, repent, and repeat is the key to restoring your relationship with Jesus Christ. The passion of Paul the Apostle's life was that I might know him. Remember Philippians 3? When he said that in Philippians chapter 3, he had already known Jesus for 30 years. Isn't that interesting? Paul, what is your the strongest desire in your life? That I might know Jesus. I thought you knew him. Well, yeah. I've known him for 30 years, but I want to know him deeper every day. He wanted to, every day to go deeper. Have a deeper, more intimate relationship with Jesus with each passing day. Guys, the question is, we'll end with this. The question you need to ask yourself is, what is the state of my love for Jesus? Not, what is the state of your theology about Jesus or the state of your service to Jesus? What is the state of your love for Jesus is the idea. If your heart has grown cold in your relationship with him, uh, ask him to light the fire of passionate, of passionate love once again in your heart. Ask him, Lord, I want to fall in love with you again. Uh, if you don't ask, it's not going to happen. That's why it's remember how it used to be, right? I used to really be in love with the Lord. Okay, great. You've acknowledged that. That's wonderful. Now pray that God, by his grace, would set your heart on fire with love for him once again, that you might fall in love with your bridegroom all over again. Like it's not too late to rekindle that honeymoon love. It's not too late to really start abiding in Jesus in a close, intimate fellowship and communion with him. Guys, that is the secret of bearing much fruit. That's the secret of bearing much fruit. Yeah, abiding in Christ, which means I love him. And not just I love him, I'm in love with him. I don't know if I can do that. You ask God. I mean, I, I don't even know if that's my will right now. He works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You lay yourself before the Lord and say, God, I don't know if I've ever been in love with you. I want to be. Give me grace to fall in love with you. That everything I do is motivated by that intense, passionate, honeymoon love for you. And watch what happens. Father, we thank you for loving us. We love you because you first loved us. 
But Lord Jesus, we know that salvation is entering into a love relationship, a commitment, marriage with you. And Lord, sometimes in a real marriage, hearts can grow cold. When that happens, the, the, uh, the fix is not to discard the marriage and start over again. It's to go back and recapture that honeymoon love. Give us grace to do that, Lord, by your strength, that we fall in love with you and abide in you every single day in close, intimate fellowship. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.